You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good evening. Welcome to the fourth annual Herb Ellison Memorial Lecture. Professor Herb Ellison was a Soviet expert, historian, who taught at the Jackson School for 34 years. He believed not only in teaching and research, but also public engagement. For the lecture that we named in his honor, we bring in speakers from outside academia who can shed light on current events. Not that academics don't also do that, but it's good to have some variety. The Ellison Center has a large portfolio of activities, such as teaching languages of the post-communist region, training students with an interdisciplinary education, and we act as a local and national resource on the whole region. We also try to bridge the so-called gap between academia and policy. That's always one of our priorities. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank a few people who set everything up tonight. Phil Lyon, the managing director, Val Petrova, the outreach coordinator, and Rachel Brown, sorry, I was going to Rachel Brown is the program coordinator. Uh, she's not here, but she also helped lay the groundwork for tonight's talk. So our speaker, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, has served in several capacities, both inside and outside government. She's one of the leading specialists on Eastern Europe and Russia, and brings insights from the highest levels of policymaking. She served from 2012 to 2015 as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. She's also served as a Senior Advisor to the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe and the Commander of the US European Command. She's also served as a professional staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. She has also served in academia as a Professor of International Relations at the US Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And she has worked in Bosnia with the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. She also has a PhD from the Fletcher School at Tufts. Since leaving the government, Evelyn Farkas has published in numerous um, venues, uh, opinion pieces, and appears regularly, I hear, on Morning Joe. She's now a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Future of Europe initiative. And tonight, the title of her talk is The Perils of Putin's Russia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Evelyn Farkas. Okay, good evening. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for being so intrepid and so clearly focused and interested in Russia that you would come out on a Friday night, um, but not just any old Friday night, it's a sunny sunny Friday evening, so I'm very grateful um, that you're here and you're giving me your attention. I know we have a lot of time potentially allotted, but I like to speak briefly and then allow more time for a conversation with all of you, because I find it very useful to hear what your questions are, to learn through your questions what your concerns are, what your interests are, and then kind of have a little bit of an exchange and a back and forth. So I will, I will be relatively brief, um, but I do want to start off by making some comments so that you know where I'm coming from and we have a basis for a conversation. 
But first, I have to say thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Radnitz Scott, for hosting me here. Thank you to the Ellison Center, to the Ellison family for your support, obviously, of the center and of this lecture. Um, to the professors and their students who were um, motivated or, or, or motivated by their professors to come out. Um, uh, thank you to the Jackson School, obviously, for the underlying support for all of this. And um, really, it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to get back to Seattle. The first time I came out here was also to give a lecture about 20 years ago at Seattle University. And um, I was speaking then, it was around 1999, 2000, about the Balkan Wars. So um, we've come, I think, a long way, although we still have a lot of concern and a lot of things to, a lot of work to finish, uh, if you will, in Eastern Europe um, and, and including the, the relationship with Russia. So again, thank you very much. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm going to just say some words about Russia and then we'll go into the Q&A. Um, a few years ago, if you had asked the average American you know, what, they, what they thought if you mentioned Russia, they might have mentioned fur hats, bears, vodka, hot blonde models or tennis stars, maybe matryoshka nesting dolls. Um, they might have also conjured up mental images of the Russian President Vladimir Putin riding horseback shirtless and kind of left it at that. And, they wouldn't have had much of a sense of what was happening in Russia, and frankly, they wouldn't have felt very bad about it. They would have felt justified in their ignorance at that time. Middle-aged Americans or older would have perceived Russia as a poor successor to the Soviet Union, a state that had seen its heyday and its relevance to the United States melt away with the end of the Cold War, and, of course, the end of communism in Europe. For younger Americans, Russia would have represented a relic of the 19th and 20th century centuries when Russia focused largely on Europe and before the recent burst of emerging and maturing markets in Asia and Africa. To the extent that there was public awareness about Russia, and I know we have some younger scholars who were aware and were paying attention, but nevertheless, in America during most of the 2000s it was largely negative or entertaining. <laughs> Russia was regarded as a state covered only by a veneer of democracy, dependent on oil and gas resources, corrupt, sometimes brutal, in economic and social decline with a flashy new super rich oligarch class. Russia had this odd showman president I mentioned before, and ineffective sleeper spies like the fiery-haired Anna Chapman and arms dealers like Victor Bout, and the former situation, of course, as we now know, inspired the television series The Americans, and the latter, a movie called Lord of War. It was only starting in March 2014 when Russia snatched Crimea from Ukraine through a lightning fast military operation, audaciously denying their operation, but then within weeks bragging about it, that Americans began to sense there was something different going on in Russia. And they began to see that Putin was not your average macho president. He was a man with a plan, which would be implemented at the expense of his neighbors, international laws and norms, and quite possibly the United States, the most powerful, peaceful status quo power. So two years later, with the war still ongoing in Ukraine, and after a destructive military intervention to help the brutal dictator Bashar al-Assad in Syria, the stark cold reality is that Russia today is a geostrategic threat to the United States, our allies, and interests. 
Indeed, earlier this year, our Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, listed Russia first among the threats to US national security. We, the United States, Europe, and other democratic allies and partners worldwide must not only face this reality, but address it head on in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia in particular. We must begin, however, with a common understanding of Russia's objectives. Once we have that, we can analyze any given situation and determine what Russia's goals are and what strategy the Kremlin is likely to pursue. So I want to outline here, and this will also help provide the basis, again, for our conversation in the Q&A, what I believe are Russia's three main objectives, and by Russia I mean the, the Kremlin and Putin, his, his government, and then two related ones. So the first main objective of Putin's Kremlin is to keep Putin in power, and that means maintain his autocratic system of government, as well as his economic system, which is basically a crony-style capitalism. It's not a free market economic system. So that's the number one objective, motivating the Kremlin and the Russian government. The second one is demonstrating that Russia is a global power on par with other global powers like the United States or pick your global power. Now, that, that, the first and two actually in and of themselves don't necessarily have to be problems for the United States, but the problem with the second one in particular is that the way that the Russian government has demonstrated that they're a co-equal to the United States and our allies lately has been not necessarily to cooperate with us, although there is an example where they have done so, and that's in the case of blocking Iran's nuclear programs, but it's mainly by countering us and sort of foiling our efforts, and, and Syria is one example. The third major objective that the Kremlin has is to rewrite the rules of the road, the, the international rules, such that nations and the international community cannot intervene in nation states, in countries, in order to save the citizens of a state from their brutal di despotic dictators. So it's basically going against the right to protect the, the principle that the UN has enshrined, whereby you can conduct an international intervention to save the citizens of a state from, again, from their brutal despotic dictators. And that we see un unfolding very clearly in the context of Syria. The two related objectives are to control the territorial periphery, Russia's territorial periphery, and what I mean by that is Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And they don't necessarily need to control it by seizing it, but they want to control it politically and economically. And then if possible, the second sort of ancillary or additional objective would be to break transatlantic solidarity. So the bonds that we have, US and Europe, to break that, ultimately if Russia could you know, see fit to undertake actions that would result in NATO and the EU going away, that would also serve the purpose of the Kremlin quite effectively. And that is also sort of an objective of theirs if they can get it. So Putin's drive to achieve these objectives obviously have raised tensions with the West because Russia's perspective and policies, as I mentioned before, about sovereignty and democracy diverge from those of the United States, its allies and partners. We advocate for true liberal democracies where the civil society balances the power of the state, where citizens, we believe, have the right to turn out despots and vote in new leaders. But it's not just in its objectives that Russia's no longer a status quo power, it's also in the means. The, to achieve its goals, the Kremlin has used 
the following means, and I have a little bit of a laundry list here. They've used economic and political subversion, including funding far-right and far-left parties, uh, funding NGOs, which could be pro-Russia or single issue, but getting into a political system in one of our allied countries or one of the periphery countries to, again, advance the Russian agenda or create internal divisions, which would help the Russian agenda, help further the Russian agenda. Intimidation, and that could be verbal intimidation. It could be a whole host of different ways to intimidate. Economic pressure through use of its near monopoly over oil and gas, um, although that may be changing now. Um, lies and propaganda, we see this playing out. Even here, you can get Russia uh, today, RT, and, um, and here, lots of lies and propaganda <laughs> delivered to you, or an over-focusing on the negative components of the United States, et cetera, so it's kind of an anti-American um, lens. Um, weaponizing refugees, that term was coined by the outgoing Supreme Allied Commander, NATO, or head of the US European Command. And what he meant by that was the Russian use of the refugee flow coming from Syria to create a destabilizing influence on Europe, politically and otherwise. And then migrant dumping, which was a term that the Finnish foreign minister used to describe what the Russian government has done on his border, where the Russians encouraged migrants who had been living for quite a long time in Russia, coming from Afghanistan and elsewhere, to cross the Russian border and go into Finland and other neighboring Nordic countries. And then, of course, invasion and military occupation. So those are all the means that Russia has used. And using these various methods, Russia seeks to hold a veto over sovereign states' decision-making, over their right to choose their trade and military associations and alliances. Russia wants to exercise control, first and foremost, over the fo former Soviet states, but beyond that, to exercise influence over all of Europe, Eurasia, the Arctic, even Northeast Asia, and you can make the argument ultimately worldwide, again, by showing that they're a global power. They would like to have actual global influence. Underpinning this aggressive foreign policy is a military reform and modernization program that began in earnest in, in 2008 in the aftermath of the war in Georgia, but really got a hefty boost in 2010 with a 10-year, $700 billion investment in Russia's modernization to bring the Russian equipment, 70% of the Russian equipment, 70% of the Russian forces with, mod with modern equipment, if you will. They haven't achieved that objective, but that's, that's the end goal. The Russian military also developed its hybrid warfare capabilities, and we saw that in Ukraine, where they demonstrated an ability to use rapid, ambiguous, almost stealthy invasion <coughs> by special operators, combined with strategic communications, to seize and hold territory, and to surprise and keep the international community at bay. The Russian military also made significant changes to their doctrine. On the nuclear front, Russia declared the right to first use of nuclear weapons in the case of a conventional attack that the Russian government deemed to be a threat to the existence of the state. So that's a kind of alarming development and obviously depends very much on the perception of the Russian government about what is a threat to the existence of the state. Russia also developed the concept of escalating a conflict in order to de-escalate it. That is to say, taking some escalatory action, like, say, a cyber attack, 
in order, or maybe a nuclear demonstration explosion, to persuade a potential opponent to stay out of a conflict that Russia is engaged in so that Russia can prevail in that particular conflict or scenario. These doctrinal developments obviously are dangerous in and of themselves, and because they but also because they reflect an insufficient understanding of the United States. Would we really sit back if there was a cyber attack on a US city or a military installation and, and say, OK, Russia, just do whatever you want to do? I don't think so. I mean, our, our history alone should be an indication that we're not likely to sit back if we suffer some kind of attack of that nature, especially if it can be attributed to the Russian government. So the deliberate escalation envisioned by Russian's military doctrine to, is, is fraught with the danger of miscalculation, to say the least. If Russia achieves its foreign policy objectives using its new capable military and all the means that I just mentioned, the Kremlin will keep employing these tactics, and that's why I'm worked up about this, including the use of force, in a manner counter to international law and US interests. What's at stake here is no less than the international order, including the principle of territorial sovereignty and our values, democracy, the rights of minorities, and human rights. Therefore, we need to counter Russia with a united global front. We must strengthen our current defensive policy, and it's defensive, one that combines deterrence, strengthening our allies and partners, and communicating the truth. So that's sort of the bottom line, what I think the, the, the recipe is, what the solution is to all of this doom and gloom that I just laid out. It's this defensive policy that combines deterrence, strengthening allies and partners, and then communicating the truth. We must employ a combination of diplomatic, economic, and military measures to implement this policy. What does this mean? On the diplomatic front, it means holding Russia accountable for violating the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which guaranteed Ukraine's territorial sovereignty in exchange for Ukraine giving up all of its nuclear weapons at the end of the Cold War. It also means holding Russia accountable for its illegal annexation of Crimea and its obligations to implement the Minsk Agreement to bring, to bring peace to eastern Ukraine. It means holding Russia accountable for the continued occupation of 20% of the territory of Georgia, and for the shootdown of Malaysian Airlines Flight MH17 two years ago, and the sudden death of the 298 passengers and crew who were on that plane. Finally, in the Middle East, it means seeking additional leverage for our diplomatic efforts, particularly relative to Syria. Our economic measures should include positive efforts to strengthen the United States, our allies and partners, including ratifying and implementing the two trade agreements that, the, that are currently under consideration, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, as well as the US-EU Free Trade Agreement, commonly referred to as TTIP. We should also offer special economic assistance or increased economic assistance to the countries on the periphery who signed the EU deep deep comprehensive free trade area agreement, so the DCFTA for short, who signed agreements with the EU to adopt their, their laws, their laws with regard to economic trade, et cetera, because they obviously incurred Russia's economic and military wrath for having done so. And we must help these countries develop transparent, non-corrupt market economies where the rule of law prevails, protects and fosters free market commercial activity. First among the negative economic measures that we need to take against Russia are the sanctions in the context of Ukraine. 
They must remain in place until the Minsk agreements are implemented and Russian forces have withdrawn from eastern Ukraine. We should, and that's, of course, part of the Minsk agreements. We should consider as a way to provide, as I mentioned earlier, more leverage for, diplom for diplomacy, sanctions on Russia in the context of Syria. And these sanctions could include not only our European allies and some of the other partners or, or allies like Japan, for example, who have joined us on the Ukraine sanctions, but also the Middle Eastern countries, excuse me, who are not currently engaged in the Ukraine sanctions effort. We should also stop all defense trade with Russia. That means no more buying Russian rocket engines, no more buying Russian helicopters. And we should continue to make all of our make efforts to, to bring Europe energy independence from Russia. And on that front, I, noted, I, I should note that the first natural gas shipment from the United States arrived in Europe, specifically in Portugal, just a couple of days ago. So we are making some inroads on that front. Militarily, we must continue to bolster the deterrence of Russia. The President's fourfold budget increase for exercises with NATO allies, pre-positioning of equipment for additional armored brigades in Europe, and the constant rotation of one additional army brigade to the Eastern European, the Eastern NATO territory is a key step. And if NATO can also rotate an additional brigade through the Baltic states and Poland, and if these two additional brigades can eventually be permanently stationed in Eastern Europe, so much the better. But in effect, we must ensure that, NATO's, that NATO can deter Russia from even thinking about making a move towards the Baltic states and Poland in particular, but also the other countries on the periphery. We must also ensure that NATO's air defenses are improved and that the military head of NATO, the Supreme Allied Commander, has the authority to move NATO forces. He must also be able to exercise the rapid reaction forces, the forces that were set up after the Wales summit by NATO. This, they're, they're called the Very High Readiness Task Force. Um, <laughs> I guess a little hyperbolic, but anyway. Um, established, uh, again, as I mentioned, um, by NATO at the uh, last year as, as, a, as an aftermath of the decision taken in Wales. NATO must also work with the European Union to develop a civil military plan to address potential hybrid military attacks, invasions that aren't, or I shouldn't even say hybrid military, but hybrid attacks. So invasions that aren't overtly military necessarily and require, in a response, cooperation between law enforcement, civilian leaders, the media, and defense officials. Finally, we must continue to provide military assistance to all the countries on Russia's periphery who feel threatened by Russia or are currently occupied by Russian forces. We must strengthen their ability to defend their territory by training their forces, improving their logistics and intelligence capabilities, and providing them with lethal defensive weapons such as um, anti-tank weapons, um, the, the one that's often mentioned as the javelin system, or counter-mortar radar systems that actually return fire. The sum total of these diplomatic, economic, and military measures would be to counter Russia's policy with a strong, united, transatlantic community, bolstered also by excuse me, allies and partners outside of Europe. As I said before, it's a defensive approach that continues to allow for cooperation with Russia in areas where the Kremlin perceives that it has an interest, such as non-proliferation, and we, again, as I mentioned, we saw that in the case of Iran. At the same time, we must also continue dialogue with Russia on strategic issues, nuclear forces, missile defense, et cetera, 
to prevent miscalculation and a renewal of nuclear arms races. Only by standing up to Russia, actively resisting the Kremlin's anti-status quo policies and actions, will we convince the Kremlin and or the Russian people that Putin's approach is doomed. Only then will Russia have a chance to build not on the sinister and at times absurd legacy of macho leaders, foiled spies, and international arms dealers, but instead on the creativity and ingenuity of the Russian arts and sciences. Putin promised, <clears throat> excuse me, Putin promised to make Russia great again. But let's face it, he's an aging spy, and he has demonstrated that he doesn't really know how to achieve that objective. He's managed to make the Russian people feel good for about 20 years by improving their standard of living by, um, on average, by enriching himself, and then along the way he enriched himself and his cronies. But the truth is that Russia now is becoming less great. The economy is in free fall with the GDP set to contract another 1.7% on top of the almost 4% decrease according to the IMF from last year. Inflation, <clears throat> excuse me, at 7% is well above the Russian central bank target of 4%. The ruble has plummeted relative to the dollar 40% in 2015 alone. And innovation is stifled by corruption and state control. China, Russia has failed to address health challenges posed by HIV alcoholism and illicit drugs. Its men live on average 265, less than in other developed countries. So we see today a Russia in decline that threatens to be more, a Russia in decline, but nevertheless, it threatens to be more dangerous to the international order than ever. Putin cannot hold on to power any longer based on a deal with the people premised on high oil prices because the day of those high oil prices is not, they are not returning anytime soon. He's clearly banking on the international expeditionary diversions to keep his Kremlin office. So, so it will be up to the United States and the international community to stand strong so that someday soon Russia and the Russians can truly become great again. And I now welcome any questions, comments. I know there's a lot of information in there and there's a lot to debate. Um, so please, um, I, I guess we have some microphones going around. Yeah, so um, I'll be on this side, and I'll be on that side. Just raise your hand, and we'll come to you and uh, ask some questions. <clears throat> so uh, we have heard people say that since time immemorial, the Russian people have always hungered for a good, strong man as their leader, that is say an autocrat. And uh, is democracy possible in Russia? Um, so I don't believe that there's any people or culture that's disposed to never be able to adopt democracy. But obviously it takes time to evolve democracy, a true democracy where you have a civil society that can balance the power of the state. And there is, there is obviously a history in Russia of the strong leader. Um, so in my opinion, it will take time to bring about, to really have a robust democracy. But I don't think that the Russian people and the Russian culture is disposed to be inhospitable somehow by its nature. Great, thank you. So I have two, I think, potentially connected questions. Um, had been one, then you brought up a second, by the way, interesting. So I'd like to know what 
the status is. You're talking about a possible EU civil military plan to counter kind of mixed, you know, cyber attacks. I'd like to know what the status of that kind of um, those kinds of systems is, and what the U.S. is doing to help. And then I also just wanted to know, from a defense perspective, what is the threat that Russia's disinformation lie campaign really presents from a defense perspective? Mm. You know, when we watch RT, what's the problem with that to our uh, Department of Defense, to our, to our security? Okay. Um, so the first one on the um, hybrid warfare, the NATO has now recently adopted what they call hybrid warfare strategy. It's not a plan. A plan would kind of take the next step. But they have a strategy in place, which is great. They have also recognized that they can't implement a strategy that is civil military in nature by themselves, so they need to reach out to the EU. So I suspect part of what you will hear at the um, summit in Warsaw is the desire to work more closely with the EU on security issues. And the United States is helping in this effort by doing our own training and engagement with, first and foremost, our NATO allies to help them combat hybrid warfare that might come from Russia. What does that mean? Teaching them you know, intelligence, tradecraft, working with, I know that we are working with the military. I don't know what we're doing on law enforcement, but I suspect there's some engagement there as well. Um, our special operations forces are active with NATO allies, working with them also on the potential little green men phenomena. Um, strategic communications, we're working with our allies and encouraging them to do a lot. In many cases, they're actually better at this than we are. Certainly in the Baltic states, they've had a lot of experience countering the Russian propaganda, the Russian lies. And so in the hybrid warfare scenario, that's a really important component of what would happen. And we saw that, of course, in the Ukraine context as well, and in the, Russia, in the Georgia context. So, uh, and then of course cyber is one part of it. And we have been engaged with those, with our NATO allies on cyber, but more from a defensive uh, perspective. And I think it will continue to remain defensive um, in terms of our engagement, helping them withstand the cyber attack. Um, the, the misinformation, the lies and propaganda, how does that hurt our defense? Or how is that a national security threat? Because you know, when we undertake any kind of military, when we undertake to support our national security or our foreign policy through military means, we, we want the populations of the countries where we're engaged or that we're trying to target in terms of getting a message across to understand what the message is. So the lie and propaganda distorts the perception of what we're trying to, to do. So for example, if we're, if we're working in the Baltic states, to help them with the little green men. We certainly don't want ethnic Russians in the Baltic states to misunderstand and think that somehow we're, we're there to make sure those Baltic states can oppress ethnic Russians or something like that. We don't want the Russian people to think that either. And we certainly don't want our people to think that. So there, and, and again, as I mentioned, Russia is active in countries there. If they could influence our populations more, they, and I'm sure they're trying, they would, they would seek to do so. So all of these tactics that I mentioned are employed regardless. And we have some very good examples of them trying to influence um, Germany more recently, which I can talk about if it comes up. So that's a little bit long answer. You mentioned the 10-year military modernization program among the long-term provocative or you know, concerning behaviors of Putin. But is that? 
a viable plan. I mean, we're more than halfway through that 10-year period, and there are a lot of reports that the you know, production of you know, new weapons and delivery vehicles and the modernization of submarines is very far behind because of the economic crisis that they can't gin up the money they need each year for the military budget. Is that something you see as more of a propaganda piece now, or is it still on target to produce those weapons? So first I would say, uh, the way I described the modernization was it, it, it enables this more aggressive foreign policy. Not that it's a problem in and of itself, you know, because if Russia was a friendly country, we wouldn't worry. But it, when you see their intent having shifted now, or at least been revealed as, as negative, that it becomes a problem for us. Um, I mean, you make a very good point, and, and I alluded to it in saying that they're, they're, they haven't implemented this modernization. They, they have finally had to cut their defense budget. They are also suffering from, I mentioned earlier, the sanctions, and some of the sanctions are quite targeted to affect their defense industry. And I mentioned other allies joining us in those sanctions. If, if it weren't for the fact that the United States, Europeans, and the Japanese together are involved in sanctions against their defense industry, they might be able to achieve more modernization using components from the West, but they rely on some of our Western components. Um, their modernization also has not been really across the board. Even, even within the 70%, it's, it's targeted. And so the problem with it is that some of the things that they've targeted, the, you know, breaking out of the INF Treaty and developing these intermediate nuclear um, missiles, that's a problem um, because, of course, they're breaking their commitments and it's a threat to our European allies. We're going to have to address it somehow if they don't roll back that program. Um, they have other things that they're developing that are very targeted and very specific. They're a cyber, they're a cyber peer, if you will, um, and what they can do with their cyber capability is also disconcerting, to say the least. Um, so you don't see, for example, that they have modern sh surface ships, but yet their submarines are becoming much more advanced, and the missiles that they're putting on the submarines are becoming more advanced. So it becomes a threat for us from that perspective. Thank you. So we hear all these words, accommodation, uh, condemnation, threat of consequences, sanctions and their likely effect. All this stuff seems to some of us that don't study this closely just morph into accommodation, whether we're looking at North Korea or, or uh, the situation in Russia or recently Iran. So my question is, between this country and our European allies, when are we going to see the resolve to actually do something, put some teeth in this? Uh, it, it seems like sanctions is our answer to everything. The faint hope of sanctions is it will drain the enthusiasm of people in those countries to support their leadership, but that just doesn't seem to work very well. So what is it going to take to really get Putin's attention instead of all these veiled threats and there'll be red lines of consequences and so forth? It just, it's discouraging. Mm -hmm. I will say, I mean, there, we really do need 
political will, and I mean transatlantic will, so I'm not going to um, point a finger at one country or one side of the ocean <laughs> or the other. Um, I think we do need to have a strong vision and a strong will to counter Russia. Um, I, I want to, you, you, you had a lot of different scenarios in there, so if I could, I'm going to take the liberty of commenting. I think with regard to Iran, actually the sanctions worked, and we do have an agreement that may actually lead to Iran abandoning its nuclear programs. We don't know yet, but it, it gives us the chance. So, I mean, I know obviously smart people can argue about this and none of us can really see to the future, but I actually support what the president did in that, in that instance. And I really do believe that it wasn't so much the sanctions, but it was the, the really um, hard implementation of the sanctions because those things were on the books before, just like they're on the books vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. And for a long time, they hadn't been actually implemented very aggressively. And this administration went to India, for example, went to all these countries and said, don't buy the Iranian oil, whereas we've been give, like turning the, the other way and not paying attention before. So I think actually in that instance, that was one where we had a lot of resolve and the president really wanted to do something about it because he's motivated to deal with the nuclear issue and nuclear proliferation. On the, on the North Korea issue, I, I also, I've worked on North Korea, I've been to North Korea, went to Yongbyon. Um, I'm quite familiar with the dynamic there um, because when I worked on the, in the Senate, um, on Scoop Jackson's old committee, um, uh, uh, it was something that we were very engaged in, and, um, and my, my boss was concerned about. But there, I don't blame the administration because it's been this cycle of, you know, the North Koreans doing something provocative, and then we say, okay, we'll, we'll give you aid, and let's sit down and talk, and then they do something provocative because they need more aid. And, you know, so, so frankly, we had to do something to stop that cycle. But I agree with you, we're, now we're stuck, and that's not a very good place to be in either. Um, and then again on Russia, I really think that over the long run, we will prevail. It would be nice to make it a shorter run, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and so what I'm outlining is a way to be strong and, and don't let Russia get away with what they're doing. Because I think in the case of Georgia, um, because there was a lot of disinformation, frankly, and personality that came into play with regard to the Georgian president and the way that that conflict unfolded, there was a lot of the blaming of the victim that, that occurred and sort of stuck. And so I think there was not a clear understanding of exactly what happened. But in the case of Ukraine, it's crystal clear now. And of course, on, on top of it is the continued Russian forces in Moldova, et cetera. So I think now we have to say, okay, enough. No more invading your neighbors and seizing their territory. And, and by the way, they're continuing to make mischief in Georgia, you know, creating, uh, borderizing the administrative boundary, moving it further closer to Tbilisi in the case of the South Ossetia border. So um, I am calling for more resolve, uh, but, and not just transatlantic, but global. So I'm quite concerned about Syria, for example, where you know, I, I see very clearly what the Russian objectives are, and they're not, they're, they're not demonstrating a willingness to compromise sufficiently yet. And so that's why I'm saying, okay, let's think about plan B. And, and I know people have used the term plan B for other things, but I think plan B should include sanctions against Russia for, for what they're doing. And there is actually a sanction on the, Rus on the US books um, for anyone or any country that's giving support to Assad.
Hello, my name is Gordon. I'm a, a graduate student from Jackson School of International Studies. And my program is China Studies. Uh, I have uh, two questions. Uh, first one, and I'm wondering whether this judgment that Russia is the number one threat to the West is a common sense among okay, the decision makers, or it is just an opinion okay, from part of you. Uh, because actually, I'm afraid uh, this kind of self-fulfilled prophecy. If you treat someone as your chief or number one enemy, so very probably he or she will become okay, uh, your enemy. And in my opinion, actually, I don't think that there is a single nation, nation state now, uh, which want, wants to be uh, the enemy of the US. Even if we look, uh, look back at history, even Germany, even Japan didn't want to be okay, enemy, enemies to the US, right? So, yeah, I'm really worried okay, about this kind of attitude yeah, to treat this nation or that nation as your enemy or your chief enemy. Okay, the se second question is, whether should we uh, uh, separate uh, Putin uh, from Russia? Because, okay, Putin is obviously a bad guy. Okay, he may, makes Russia less great, as you said. But Russian people as a nation, I think that, okay, uh, uh, US is obviously uh, always uh, uh, forced to support a pro democracy, okay? Uh, forces. For example, whether we can help uh, Russian people or the Russian crude democracy and forces, uh, can we just try isolate Putin instead of Russia? So I'm thinking whether it is more uh, appropriate if we just exchange uh, Putin and Russia in your title. Okay, okay. Yeah. so the question okay. is uh, whether or not we can. Uh, separating Russia from yeah. Putin, um, so I guess the same question, the first question is, is whether or not uh, the this, maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. of, of yeah. regarding Russia's yeah. enemy and therefore it becoming an enemy. Okay, so I think it's really important to use words precisely and to, and to, and to take note of words that are used. So I would not say that Russia is the enemy of the United States. What I said was that Russia is the, is the number one or the top national security threat. That, so that is not the same as saying that a country is our enemy. It's just that it, Russia's actions pose a threat to United States interests. And so, so we have to counter it, we have to address it. And yes, it would be nice. And, and in fact, during the reset, you know, we worked very cooperatively with Russia and we were able to achieve some things, but only when the Russians deemed that it was in their national interest. And when it came to an issue where they didn't think it was in their national interest, they knew what they were doing, so they would cooperate with us. And frankly, that part of reset has, has, has continues, because if the Russians are willing to cooperate with us, again, on Iran, or let's say if they are willing to compromise in the case of Syria, where, which I think should be possible, then we can work with Russia and cooperate with Russia. And, and so again, that's not an enemy, enemy, you know, it's not an adversarial relationship necessarily. And as I mentioned also before, we have to have 
conversation, we have to have discussions with Russia, not just at the military to military level, which is important about incidents at sea, et cetera, and those, and those discussions are supposed to happen annually, although the Russians did not participate for a couple of years there. They agreed last, this past previous round, they came and they had the discussions. Um, but we also need to discuss with Russia, as I mentioned, the issues the strategic issues, nuclear and other issues that are bound up in the question of our overall military strategic balance with Russia. So um, I do think it's important, yes, I think we should be mindful of, of self-fulfilling prophecies and we should be smart in how we deal with Russia. And I think that our, that's been very, um, very front and center. I mean, I shouldn't talk about what the president thinks, but I do think that this administration has tried very hard not to get into any kind of trap where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's also an understanding that, frankly, oftentimes the Kremlin, Putin, the Russian media, they would like to paint the United States as an adversary and an enemy when it suits their interest. It fluctuates. It depends on the day and what's going on. But they also tend to do that, and we, we have not been interested in feeding into that kind of a, a dynamic. Um, on the issue of, now I forgot the second one. Uh, yeah, so I think, look, we're dealing with the Russian government and the Russian government's policies, and, and you know, that, that's, it's important to understand who's in charge and what the policies are. Of course, we want to appeal to the Russian people, and the U.S. government tries to also explain explain that our policy is not aimed at Russia or the Russian people, it's aimed at the policies of the Kremlin. And if the Kremlin changes their policies, then we'll be more, you know, we will drop the sanctions, for example, with regard to the Ukraine scenario. So I think that there is a distinction to be made. It's an important distinction to make. Okay, so uh, there's going to be a lot of questions, which is to say, um, the tricky news is that Dr. Farkas is on East Coast time, so we can't keep her here. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I'm just going to ask if you can keep your questions short and to the point and avoid statements so that we can try and get in a number of different questions. Do you want, do you want to take a couple of questions? However you'd like to Oh, them. maybe you can. Okay, go ahead. So. We've, we've got a line. <laughs> to what extent were, uh, is uh, Putin's thinking shaped by what NATO and the U.S. did in Serbia in the late 1990s, and in moving NATO and EU, the EU closer and closer to the Russian border, so that the Russians feel as the Germans once did, encircled by their quote enemies unquote. When it's interesting because um, when I look at what what happened in Ukraine, for example, in the Minsk agreement dynamic, there was a lot of similarity with the Balkans where. You had the Vance-Owen negotiations, but while Vance and Owen were negotiating with Milosevic and all the Balkan leaders, you had fighting on the ground to change the terms of the negotiation. And so you saw that same dynamic playing out in Ukraine and, frankly, in Syria. So the Russian government, I mean, they, they, they took note. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's a similar way of operating. <coughs> with regard to the encirclement issue, I mean, if you're Russian, I understand that perspective. Um, but I think there are better ways than to address the, your fear of encirclement than seizing the territory of your neighboring state and all these other things that I mentioned. I think you know, we, we, we have enough empathy and understanding in the West that we could have a rational conversation. In fact, that's what the, that's what the um, 
founding act, the NATO-Russia founding act was all about in 97 that they signed with Russia to say, we'll be partners now. We'll respect the sovereignty of one another's states and we, and we won't station forces in the new eastern part of NATO permanently and in substantial amounts because we all agreed on these principles that we're going to be partners now. So we could go back to that. It just takes some decision making in the Kremlin. Could you say something about uh, Russia's relationship with China, and then also are there things the U.S. can do to influence that relationship? So Russia's relationship with China is interesting because I think if for, for really deep Russian strategists, people in Russia who think hard about Russia's future and their security interests, they must understand that the, the challenge for Russia really is the relationship with China down the road because of the increasing military power that China has, because of the demographic situation, because of the trade you know, pressure that China can bring to bear on Russia, potentially. So I think the future for, China, for Russia is really to figure out what their relationship with China is, just as actually that's part of our future. And so this problem that we're having with Russia in the European context, frankly, is unfortunate and unnecessary. And the Russians, I think, will see that they want, ultimately, they will want a closer relationship with Europe so that they can better negotiate with China. But right now, they're using the relationship with China, which frankly is not very deep, um, to signal to the West that they don't need us, that they don't need Europe. They have other alternatives. They have this other friend. But I, but I think the Chinese clearly know that there's a power imbalance, and, and deep down the Russians must know it too. But they, they continue to sort of pretend as if they're counterbalancing us with this relationship with China, which is really advent, more advantageous to China than to Russia. And Jill has one too. Uh, my question is whether Russia is currently developing a missile system that would violate the treaty on intermediate range nuclear forces. Yes, uh, and more than that, they have developed that missile system. And the question is whether they will, what they will do next. And it's quite disconcerting, to say the least. Um, we have a whole history in the past of eliminating the, I mean, President Reagan eliminated, together with Gorbachev, that class of weapons. Um, and so this is a, just another example of Russia not abiding by its arms control agreements and commitments. And they have, there are examples as well in the conventional arms control arena, but I won't bore you with them. They have to do with transparency and saying ahead of time, okay, we'll bore you with them, saying ahead of time that you're going to have exercises with which forces, why, where, how many forces, you have to stay under a threshold. I think it's about 75,000. Um, they've gone well beyond that many times, and they do what's, they have what's called snap exercises, very little notice, very little transparency, again, misrepresenting the, the numbers and what they're doing. Um, and, as, and just to make a comparison, NATO's exercises are telegraphed well in advance, almost a year in some cases. They, they've never been more than 75, that seven, sorry, 7,000 
although this summer they, Poland is doing, hosting a multinational exercise, which will be about 25,000, but still nowhere near the 100,000 that the Russians have. So, um, um, so there are other areas where Russia is not meeting its, its arms control commitments. You know, I hate to bring up the election, but uh, I'm just saying, this is such a... What election? A question, but for the new administration, whatever it will be, um, of course, with Obama's administration, we have a reset. Um, what would your advice be for, I don't know whether it would be an action or just a strategy approach, whatever it might be, for the new administration going in, is there anything that they should do vis-a-vis Russia? Yeah. I mean, I think it would be everything that I mentioned um, and, and what would be new, you know, would differentiate a new, the, the new administration from what the current administration is doing. Because much of this is being done by the current administration. I'm just calling for more of it. Um, but what would be different is if we started a dialogue with Russia about these strategic stability issues. That would be different. Um. Yeah, I have two questions, one, one political and then one very personal. Um, the general one is, I, I can assume then that if in fact Britain um, exits, that will really play into Putin's hand. So yes. can you make some conjecture as to what the immediate implication would be? And then my second question, the personal one is, I'm supposed to go to Russia in September, and a number of people um, have told me that it is dangerous now, that there's very strong anti-American feeling. Um, they're not specific about what the danger is, that we absolutely should not get involved in any political discussions with anyone. So I'm just wondering what advice you have. Okay, well, first of all, uh, on this, I'll take the second one. I mean, my predilection is always to go, always to engage, always to learn, you know. I, and I also am kind of a, uh, not someone who's generally fearful. So I lived in Bosnia in a hot zone right after the war, you know. Um, so you might not want to take my advice. Um, I guess the safe thing for me to say is go check with the embassy, but you know, really talk to people who have been there lately. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's dangerous for the average citizen. I know tons of people have done the Viking. You know, the, now it's not like I'm like a you know a, a, a travel agent for for sorry. Yeah, and people love that cruise. So I mean, I you know, it's a wonderful experience, and I know people who have done it since Crimea. So I don't think that we need to cut off all commercial ties with Russia and people-to-people -people contact and commerce and all that stuff, that's silly. You know, we're, our sanctions even are very targeted towards people who are supporting the Kremlin in their military adventures. So it's, it's not across the board sanctions and it's not like a Cold War. It's not the Cold War. Um, okay, uh, the first part of your question. Oh, Brexit, yes. If, if the British people really I mean, I cannot imagine that they would take a vote to leave because I'm an optimist and I think it's very bad. Um, uh, then I think he would absolutely take advantage and it would be really, um, it would be a very dark day. So hopefully we won't get there. 
you mentioned the richness of Russian culture. I'm up here, back here. Um, the richness of Russian culture. You mentioned the Russian language media in Russia as very important sources for Americans. I was wondering if you could comment on uh, your view of what, how well prepared we are as a country to to study Russian language sources. We see like really really large drops in students studying Russian language. We see government cuts to Title VI centers and flat fellowships. Uh, what are your thoughts on the importance of learning Russian? And I could, I could add 20, 30 languages uh, yeah. uh, uh, to, to uh, understanding these issues. Yeah, so if I, if I could add to my laundry list, I would absolutely include we should refund those programs. We need to learn Russian. We need to be engaged. And this is also another gives me an opportunity to make another point because oftentimes people will say, well, Russia is a declining power, you know, forget about Russia, just ignore Russia, let's just, you know, do the Asia thing. Um, and it's, even if Russia is declining, who says it's going to be declined? And, you know, and as I mentioned already, of course, they're dangerous now in their declining state, but Russia is a serious you know, it's a large territory, it's a large federation, there are a lot of people there, Russia has a lot to contribute to the world, so I don't believe it's smart to, you know, ignore Russia um, and, and, you know, quote unquote, put it in the corner. So I think more engagement is good, more understanding of the culture, more working, you know, get, that gets to the democracy issue, you know, just working people to people and understanding cultures is always important, and language is the key to that. And, and frankly, for the national security community, which I was part of until recently, it's really important to have people who understand Russia too, because we don't want to miscalculate, and we want Russian speakers so we can read their documents and you know, um, spy on them. And I mean, literally, we need our intel people to understand Russia and Russian as well. So I think um, I support that. Um, I, can you? You. Yep. Um, so I uh, I've heard your narrative uh, many times now. Um, I'm quite familiar with the story, and it's all um, frankly, it's quite hard to swallow. I mean, the idea that the United States has been a staunch defender of, of personal liberties and liberal democracy, I think is how you put it, and democratic rights around the world is, is um, I actually find kind of laughable, um, and I think it's, you know, maybe acceptable in, in some old textbook, but these days it's, it's not, I mean, there was just this thing released from Greenpeace this week about the TTIP in Europe, in Germany, where um, essentially it's taking away any rights of the sovereignty of, of the German courts and the German parliament to decide. Okay, sir, could you please get to your question? Yeah, I am, I'm just... Just getting to a certain uh, thought that I have sure. about, but um, you know, we were taking away that right of nations that we're calling our allies in the fight for democracy. But what do we, you know? I, I think it's it's in a certain degree ludicrous. Um, not to mention, uh, you're saying <coughs> Russia is, has a crony capitalism. I mean, look at our so system. Could you please get your question? I asked you. To. So, so my question for you is, uh, aside from your narrative, assuming that it is true and assuming that you want to follow your theories about confronting Russia, um, how far and are you willing to take it to a nuclear exchange? No. <laughs> 
but I think, go, you know, if I can respond a little bit to some of the stuff you just mentioned, you know, um, every, every, people are, people have negative tendencies and positive tendencies and societies are made up of humans. So what really keeps a society from being overwhelmed by corruption, for example, are, is rule of law. And so I think that does make the United States actually different from Russia in, in particular. We have, we have laws that protect our people and are and against or, or that punish people for corruption. Of course, some people get away with it. Um, again, in every society, that's going to happen. But we have rule of law that protects commerce, that protects individuals. And you don't have that in Russia. And so there is a big difference. And also, it's state-sanctioned corruption. You know, we don't have our president sanctioning corruption um, through his exercise of government and his control of, of entities, large commercial entities, because also we don't have large commercial entities owned by the state. So, um, unless I'm leaving something out. Um, I so, I can't take your question. I can't take another question without the microphone. I'm told because of the video. But um, so, I would just say, um, uh, and on trade, you know, the sovereign states will decide whether they want to join TTIP, um, and. I don't think it's going to happen over the heads of the people because ultimately also they, they have voted in the governments and they can vote out the governments if they're dissatisfied with some action that they take. I agree with your identification of uh, preservation of the regime as one of Russia's supreme interests. Uh, but I'm a little concerned that some of the measures that you identified to counter Russia uh, may not achieve the objective you seek. Uh, specifically, supplying lethal defensive weapons in Ukraine uh, may in fact play into Putin's hands, as he would be interested in perhaps a potential escalation of the conflict there that he would commit to in a more serious way and would allow him to engage in more foreign adventurism. Uh, how would you respond to that? Um, it's a good question, um, and obviously something that um, the president has weighed heavily when he thought about what to do. Um, in my personal view, the lethal defensive weapons like the anti-tank weapons would not change the situation on the battlefield sufficiently for Russia to feel that Ukraine would get the upper hand against them and, and certainly wouldn't change the overall military balance between the two countries. So because of that, I don't think Russia would likely escalate if, the, if, however, we provided something to the Ukrainians that would start to make it appear that the Ukrainians could actually push the separatists out, they could prevail militarily, then the Russians would definitely respond and escalate. And we saw them actually do that when the separatists were, were losing um, over a year ago um, in, in, in Donetsk. So, um, or in the Donbass, rather. So I, I, I just don't see that dynamic happening there. Um, it's a valid concern. And again, you know, people can disagree and, and, and come down either way on it. I just happen to believe that it would actually deter, potentially, because I, I noticed, I took great note of how the Russians handled fatalities on their side. 
and how sensitive they were about the coverage and the public knowing that they, that actually Russian troops had fallen, had died in Ukraine. They were doing secret burials. They were they beat up a journalist who covered it heavily in one of the um, cities. So, um, to my mind, that's a weakness. That's a that's that that could be used against them in order to deter them. Uh, yeah, so one of the uh, recommendations you gave has to do with uh, aiding the states of Russia's periphery, former Soviet states, so they, they can better defend themselves. The U.S. has struggled over the past, now it's 25 years, uh, with what to do about these states. I mean, specifically Ukraine, Moldova, and to some extent Georgia, that are still weak states and divided politically with weak institutions, democracy sometimes, uh, but for the most part, a lot of dysfunction. Uh, at what point might the US, maybe not openly, but at least tacitly, bow to the reality that these states are ultimately going to have to help themselves become strong states first for the sake of their citizens, in addition to being able to resist penetration by Russia. Um, and to recognize the fact that even though we don't like the concept of spheres of influence, and even though we love these countries to be liberal democracies, uh, Russia is always going to absorb more influence on those states. And if it wants to, it will. Uh, and of course, we never acknowledge this openly because we, we should stand up for liberal democracy. Um, but at least in terms of actual policy, is there a point at which we have to bow to, to that reality? To the extent that you agree that that's actually the reality. Thanks. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't believe that we have to bow to that reality, quote unquote. Um, I would agree with you that those nations have, first and foremost, a responsibility themselves to be more democratic, to develop politically and economically, to counter corruption, all of those things that they say they want to do. If they are going to join NATO, the EU, they have to do those things in order to qualify for membership in those, in those institutions. And they should want to do those things even if they can't get in right away because it, it's in their self-interest and they've said that it's already their objective to become more democratic and, and more free market economy um, oriented or have a free market economy. Um, so I think, yes, there's a responsibility on the part of those states, but there's no reason why we should leave them high and dry to do it by themselves. I mean, we help the Eastern European countries also make their transitions. Why would we not help those countries? Basically, the US policy has always been to help countries that are seeking to make a, such a transition and seeking to become more democratic. And it's not, it, we never saw it necessarily as countering Russia. It's just that Russia has seen it that way because they are not interested in true democracy and a true free market economy. Uh, but earlier, I'm not abandoning those countries. <laughs> earlier you uh, referenced a compromise in Syria, and I just wanted to hear you elaborate more on what that looks like for Russia. I'm, I'm sorry? Syria and the Syrian situation. Well, so I said before that I don't see the Russian objectives changing in Syria. So the Russians went, the Russians always were interested in, in Assad remaining in power and maintaining their influence in Syria. 
they have always had, the, they've wanted to keep the, the naval base, but now, of course, they have a more robust air base. And they were willing to maybe compromise on, on Assad leaving at some point. Um, and then it appears that we also, the United States government, also compromised somewhat on he must not go immediately, but he has to go. Um, but nevertheless, the Russians really don't want him to go. And so they're doing everything they can to bolster his position at the negotiating table. I shouldn't say they're doing everything they can. They're doing what they need to do to bolster his position at the negotiating table. They're not pulling out all the stops. And, and they're trying to portray what they're doing as different from what they're actually doing. You know, so, they're, so initially they said they're fighting ISIL. You know, now, I don't know what they say. They're saying they're bringing peace. You know, but meanwhile, they're also bringing war. <laughs> so you know, with one hand bringing peace and the other hand bringing war. Um, and again, this gets into a little bit of that dynamic I mentioned before, where you're waging war to influence the negotiations at the table. So I'll just leave it at that. It's quite depressing, though, because frankly, um, the Syria crisis and the humanitarian situation there is atrocious. And we should be trying to do something more um, as an international community, at least to alleviate the, the suffering. So. What diplomatic plan has been brainstormed in case uh, Putin happens to um, have an untimely death or something like that? I, a quick, quick statement for context. I, uh, I attended a conference with um, William Pomeranz, deputy director of the Kennan Institute, and he said back in 2008 when Putin left uh, office that different factions like the oligarchs and I can't quite remember the other, um, they were actually using their own police forces to like arrest uh, different factions because they wanted to take control of the country and that hit Putin's inner circle is only about six or seven people. So what diplomatic plan is being brainstormed in case of something like that happening and Russia being thrown into chaos? <coughs> I mean, I don't think we have, well, diplomats don't generally make plans the way the military does. Um, and I think, obviously, there's always a discussion, you know, if Putin were to decide to leave or leave the political uh, landscape for whatever reason, you know, what would follow Putin? That's a discussion that you, you often hear. Um, and frankly, I think most... Most people in the US government believe you would get something similar to Putin, someone from his inner circle, um, taking over the reins of government. So there's not, people don't really foresee something radically different, although some, some have painted a potential scenario of a more nationalist leader maybe getting into power. But um, I find it, I find the, the likelihood that we'll get someone quote unquote worse than Putin as low, I just, I, I, maybe I'm naive, but, um, well, worse would be a nationalist who really um, is even more uh, bold or reckless, if you will. I mean, Putin will take risks, but he's also, I think he's parsimonious with his use of force. He does what he needs to do to get his objective, um, but he doesn't go all out, necessarily, if he doesn't have to. 
Um, and he has a healthy understanding, and I think for Article 5, for example, of the NATO, um, uh, of the, uh, NATO treaty. So um, it's, it's, it's an open question what would follow Putin, but I think for the for people in government, they tend to be conservative and they just sort of assume that it'll be similar. That that's that may not be realistic, but that's the best way to plan if you're in the U.S. government. Can you speak further on the situation in Germany and if you have a strategy to deal with that, and also a strategy to combat Russian diaspora throughout Europe and abroad? Well, I don't think we should combat the Russian diaspora. I think the Russian diaspora can be really helpful in, um, in this equation. Um, I think, so that's answering the second question. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to help where there is a, a truth behind the Russian claim that their diaspora is not being treated properly. There we need to put pressure on the governments in question and work with the governments in question to try to help the ethnic Russians who are maybe disadvantaged or are actually disadvantaged in certain states to achieve a better situation. So I think we do need to deal, if there, if there is, because not everything the Russians say, the Kremlin says is a lie or an exaggeration, and if there is truth to how ethnic Russians are being treated in certain communities and, and, and states, then we need to work with those states and we need to adjust that. Um, on the um, first part of your question about Germany, well, I think there what I was alluding to is, you know, the, the Kremlin and Putin is trying very hard to influence the dynamic in Europe to achieve advantage. And right now the strongest um, proponent for transatlantic unity and taking a hard line uh, against Russia in the Ukraine context is the German chancellor. So to the extent that she can be weakened, Russia's interested, and what we saw most recently was this fabricated story of a 13-year-old ethnic Russian called Lisa in Germany who was supposedly um, abducted and raped by migrants from the Middle East. Um, it turned out to be a false story, but until it was proven to be false, even Foreign Minister Lavrov mentioned our Lisa, quote unquote. And when the chancellor found, you know, when all this came to light that it was false and it was done, of course, in the aftermath of the real um, attacks on women um, that, that the women suffered in Cologne by migrants, um, which was covered up by the Germans, so that the, the chancellor was vulnerable at that moment. Um, after she realized that the, there may have been a Russian hand playing in all of this, she actually has, has asked for kind of an investigation, a look at like what the Russians are doing to influence the political landscape in Germany. So um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a danger, but I don't know if that was your question, whether it was a danger, but that's what's, that, that was what I alluded to earlier. Coming back to Ukraine for a moment. Okay, okay thanks. Uh, it's been a year since Minsk II now has been signed. Uh, the progress is uh, pessimistic. Um, the fighting continues. It's not at the level that there was in February of 2015, but certainly it has not stopped. OSCE is continuously uh, under attack. Um, there are reports that OSCE is um, leaking information to the separatists and Russian forces. These are internal reports in Ukraine. I don't know to what extent they uh, really make it into the calculus in the United States. Um, the Minsk agreement itself is uh, 
very difficult politically to implement by uh, Ukraine domestically. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how does this end? Uh, what can we do, uh, aside from the measures that you've already outlined yeah. in the United States, uh, and whether there's anything at all that we can do given the situation and the leverage that parties involved have? Mm -hmm. Okay, so actually I would maybe add to the, 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 the item where Jill asked me what would I have the next president do? I think also get more heavily engaged in the Minsk process. I would, rather than what we're doing now, which is kind of behind the scenes supporting the chancellor and, and um, the French president in their effort, in, which is called the Minsk agreements, I would actually get more directly involved. Um, I, you know, the Minsk agreements are very flawed. It's basically a list of here's what Ukraine has to do, and they're mainly political things, you know, giving more autonomy to the areas in Donetsk that are now occupied by the separatists. And, and then a list of things that the Russians have to do, which includes, you know, removing heavy weapons, Russian personnel, um, uh, re, you know, reestablishing the border, exchange of prisoners. Of course, the Ukrainians also have to do that. So, um, but those two lists, <laughs> there's no agreement about the sequencing and how they relate to one another, who goes first and what has to happen first. And clearly you can't have elections, so elections are on the Ukrainian roster. You can't have elections if you still have Russian military forces occupying Donetsk. Um, so there is a real weakness in Minsk and you would have to have a real, another round of negotiations to hammer out the sequencing. But unfortunately, I don't really think that the Russians are interested in doing that, because right now, this ongoing sort of low level of fighting serves Russia's interests because it effectively prevents the Ukrainians from undertaking some of the political, from passing some of the legislation they need to pass in order to make the political changes. And Putin doesn't want the Ukrainians to implement their part of Minsk because he'd have to implement his part. It's better for him to keep this frozen conflict, it's not frozen, to keep this, whatever, simmering conflict going because that way he can continue over time to erode, to weaken. He's hoping over time that the Ukrainian government will fail, that their economy will fail, that the West will give up on Ukraine. <coughs> you know, that, so he can just drag this out over time. It doesn't cost him that much. So that's an option. Although he could also surprise us, you know, I mentioned this earlier today in another forum, and say, you know what, I'm done with this stuff in the East. Um, I got Crimea anyway so far, right? I mean, we don't recognize that, but he can say I got Crimea. Um, let me actually come to an agreement here on Minsk. He could surprise us by doing that, but he hasn't opted to do that yet. I was hoping to ask, because it's news to me that we're actually contemplating sanctions on Russia, on Syria. We're, we're not, we're not. It's just my idea. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> a question on that, and, and, and if you could just respond then to, and my understanding I mean, I shouldn't say we're not. I don't know if we are. Okay. Let me be the more US, precise. The U.S. government, I, I believe, although we believe that Assad has lost legitimacy, we do still recognize him as the president of Syria. Correct. I think we do. I mean, as far as I know, the State Department still does recognize him as the president of Syria, although he has lost legitimacy. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. That's yeah, and and by and, the way, on Russia the first is part, operating there yeah. on, in, by invitation of Assad, by the president. 
And so I'm kind of curious as to why you see there be a basis for sanctioning Russia. I, mean, I, I see how their actions there have gone against some of what we're trying to do, but we're in fact arming various groups to fight the government. So we there by invitation of the government. Right. So, okay, so first of all, I can't, it is possible that inside the U.S. government they're contemplating sanctions. So I should, I should be as precise as I can be with regard to that issue. But, but I am presenting it here today as a, an idea that I support. Um, with regard to the sanctions, so the, we have sanctions, so Assad used chemical weapons against his people. He has barrel bombed his people. Um, and we undertook in the United, aside from what has happened in the UN context, we in the United States passed uh, or adopted by executive order a sanction against Assad and those supporting him because of what he's done to his people. So it's on the basis of that existing mechanism that you could um, sanction Russia for supporting Assad who is doing this to his people. Yeah. It is, it is really, I mean, the sanctions issue is tough. Um, our president was very deliberate in going about how we applied our sanctions, and we did it in concert with Europe on purpose because we understood that we don't have that much, again, of this targeted trade going on with Russia, and we don't have as much that would be sanctioned. And we sanctioned individuals as well, right? But, but it's the Europeans that matter because if they're lending to the Russian banks that support Putin, well then, what does it matter that we've sanctioned? So we understood and we continue to understand that it's really important to, do, to, to implement the sanctions lockstep with the <coughs> Europeans. But the problem is, as you mentioned, the fact that the Europeans have more trade and history of trade and with Russia means that they will suffer more or they will they will suffer more. They will have to work around the sanctions more than we will. And so they don't like that. And there are a lot of business interests, for example, in the energy field that don't want to, um, they, they're unhappy about the fact that they can't do business with Russia. So we have worked now, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're supplying natural gas that required the president to take certain actions in order to allow us to do that. Um, to, to ship the um, natural gas in a liquid form to, to Europe. Um, and so we're working now, and, and also we have worked through the State Department with Azerbaijan to also have an alternative pipeline. But um, the sanctions issue is a serious one, and it's something we have to constantly work on. We have to use our diplomacy, and we have to try to reduce the pain for our European allies and partners, but where you see resistance to the sanctions, it tends to be in those countries that have more dependence on the Russia um, commercial economic relationship. Okay. Well, you've had a very long day. 
Her first event was 8 in the morning today. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you.